one of the most interesting parts about this is, you know, we always think about IKEA as having that really Scandinavian design. Notori follows like the Japanese tradition of that innovative practicality, you know, like just make things that kind of work. And that actually means that they scale down a lot of their offerings because they're making products specifically for the Asian market. Individual investors are free of burden. They can buy a stock. And in, in the words of Chris Mayer, uh, who I interviewed for this show about a year and a half ago and who wrote the book 100 Baggers and Where to Find Them, uh, Chris Mayer said that individual investors can put their shares on a coffee can and leave it for 25 years and answer to nobody. And I think I'm almost certain that Warren Buffett said that if he was managing a small amount of money, he would return 50% annual growth per year reliably. 2020 and 2021 building was effectively paused not just because people you know weren't necessarily allowed to be in proximity of each other but also wasn't there a huge run on lumber during that period so i would say like in terms of pace like the u.s housing market hasn't been up to where it needs to be probably for the last 10-ish years hi there and welcome to stock club podcast brought to you by my wall street i'm mike and joining me today's episode are emmett savage and amory kingdom from the my wall street analyst team before we get into today's show, I just want to give a quick word from our friends and sponsors at Vodafone Business. If you're an Irish business looking to get ahead in the digital world, Vodafone Business is the place to go. They now offer a whole array of digital apps, productivity tools, security solutions, IT support, and even website builders. More recently, they've launched their VHub Digital Advisory Service. With this new service, Irish businesses of all sizes can get free one-to-one digital support and advice tailored to their business by simply booking a call with one of the VHub Digital Experts on the Vodafone Business website. Search Vodafone VHub for more information. Emmett, Amory, welcome to another episode of Stock Club. Thanks for joining me today. Um, we usually talk a lot about some of the great investors of our times. Warren Buffett comes up a lot. I think he's coming up on this show as well. But there's a few, <laughs> there's a few in the political realm of the states who don't get enough credit. So I just want to highlight Senator Thomas Tuberville. Tuberville. Uh, so he's just disclosed 250k worth of futures trading in wheat, corn, soy, and cattle. Thomas Tuberville also sits on the Senate Committee for Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry. So we talk about insider trading. I think that goes beyond insider trading. Oh my goodness! I mean, the, part of you goes, "Oh, well, if he's doing it, I should do it." But the other bigger part of you says, "No, something is utterly corrupt here. Uh, this guy is profiteering from something that he knows, or is likely to profiteer from something he can see coming down the tracks." Yeah, they shouldn't be allowed to do that at all. Not, not even something he sees coming. Something he literally has, has power, direct over. influence over. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, yeah. This, has been, know, this has been going on for a number of years, though. I remember a couple of years ago, it was a bunch of senators bought up, um, like, I think it was all like satellite companies and stuff like that. And then two months later, it came out that they were being awarded a massive military contract. It's uh, been going on for a while. It's it's like so much of an issue and it's caught so many people's attention. I know a number of services allow you to like robo trade based upon the trades of Nancy Pelosi or um, there's been two index funds set up. One is tracking Republican senators and um, House Representatives members and the other is tracking Democrats to see who, who performs better year over year. Um, but I remember doing analysis on this a couple of years ago and it's something like on average, regardless of party, if you are a sitting member of uh, like any kind of house um, in in the U.S. federal system, it's like the likelihood of you outperforming the market by a margin of more than two is 
almost 100 percent oh my goodness trading so like yeah it's it's definitely an issue i know that there is a bill being brought to the floor actually it's a bipartisan bill which is being sponsored by aoc and matt gates which is quite controversial because they are very much on opposite sides of the spectrum but both of them have identified this as being a huge issue that like you should just not allow to actively trade if you are in the senate or the house of representatives are either of you guys around long enough to remember martha stewart does that oh yeah yeah yeah. so right martha stewart omnimedia or is it omnimedia i never knew how to pronounce that she was obviously defending ceo and she served time for a very small negligible trade on the periphery of her life like if i recall correctly it wasn't she who made the trade but someone belonging to her and as the founding ceo that person benefited and and she went she went inside she did time and yet we've senators who can actually pass i presume bylaws or whatever they're called in america that directly influence their benefit is just it's completely wrong yeah. yeah, I hear the term late stage capitalism a lot and pretend like I know it. But then when you see something like that, that really defines it, it kind of makes sense. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit like a Galway accent. Mm. I, can only rec- <laughs> I can only recognize it when I hear it. <laughs> okay, um, so Amory, we're going to get into it now with Celsius Holdings. So this is a company that's been growing like absolute wildfire over the past few years. In fact, the stock is about a 40 bagger since the start of 2020. And yeah. um, so you've been looking into it. What's kind of been the catalyst behind the growth here? Really, it's just kind of absolute insane demand. I would credit most of that has kind of been prompted for the way that Celsius has positioned itself in relation to the broader market, which I suppose they can be celebrated for that. We kind of saw Celsius as being a contender in the energy market probably back in like 2019, seriously, and then going into 2020. The brand was really smart in how it decided to position itself as a healthy energy drink and its branding I would say resembles more like Lululemon or vitamin water rather than its obvious competitors of Red Bull and Monster. It's essentially trying to normalize energy drinks for the masses. Um, Even if you just like look at the way its cans are designed, it's like a pretty simple look, nothing too rock or hardcore like we're used to seeing. You know, Monster and Red Bull have positioned themselves really as being extreme. And I think that was kind of born from the idea of extremeness being cool. Like just look at the sports that they sponsor. It's like BMX, motocross, skateboarding, snowboarding red bull has that insane flying competition where you just like launch yourself into a river um that is very much against celsius you know that type of marketing is aspirational it's it's drink a monster energy drink and you will be tony hawk um celsius is very much saying like caffeine is normal maybe you should drink it in a form of a low calorie uh, soda as opposed to a coffee it's you know really similar to lululemon saying working out is normal whatever way you do it is cool you do not need to be lebron james when it's trying you know when lululemon is trying to compete with nike so um it, it makes sense in terms of marketing the way that they're going they also are pursuing a really smart niche in gym culture which is celsius is chasing that trend that's been really brewing for a while of using an energy drink for pre-workout to kind of give yourself energy before you go in and hit the weights and that's also being reflected and we're seeing a huge surge in pre workout powders um so i think they're cornering that market really well mm, and that they should be illegal by the way they're awful yeah, yeah. Some, of, pure... some of the pre-workout powders have like four times the amount of caffeine you're meant to consume in a day yeah absolutely sorry it's yeah so i, I like uh, it yeah. already i like to send it <laughs> 
Excellent. Um, I don't think Celsius has that quite that much caffeine, so we might be safe there. Um, that was paired really well with Celsius back in lockdown, sponsored a bunch of at-home workout programs that were on social media and YouTube, you know, really trying to be like, we are healthy. Um, this has been reflected in comments from their CEO, John Fieldley, really since 2020. He has a great quote that says, what we're seeing in new customers that are coming to the drink category is they don't want their grandfather's energy drink. They don't want Red Bull. They don't want Monster with all the sugar. These brands that are more traditional energy are just not on trend today and not what the consumer wants. And that has been reflected in our data. Um, Celsius's products match this perfectly. They have zero calories. They have no sugar, uh, natural flavoring. It's essentially like a sparkling seltzer that we have seen absolutely dominate the alcohol category, except unfortunately, this one won't get you buzzed. Um, And I would say that that strategy has paid off big time. Consumers really know the brand now, particularly young people. And now I think the special sauce and and the growth strategy moving forward is is really going to be distribution and just getting the product in front of people. Um, That seems to have been paying off the last three or so quarters. Just a bit of context. They just wrapped Q2 of 2023. Um, And for the last nine quarters, Celsius has seen revenue growth above 100%, which is pretty insane. That slipped just for one quarter, which was Q4 of 2022, but they only slipped down about 75% and they're already like re-accelerating again. So um, good for them. And really just across the board, any kind of key performance metric that they have uh, is accelerating over the last several years. So uh, in Q4 of 2020, they were in about 200 coolers across the United States. They're in about 3,250 now. They've also managed to go from 174 US stores to 100 75,000 U.S. locations. And really part of this can be credited to the fact that Celsius penned a very important deal with Pepsi last year. Pepsi made a $550 million investment in August. um, And part of that agreement was that they would help with long-term distribution of Celsius. And that's helped them get into places like gas stations and independent stores and really just move its product faster than it ever could on its own. Um, So that has been very, very important over the last couple quarters. Um, And then beyond that, like Celsius, because it is now so familiar with consumers, it can go directly to them. They do a pretty significant portion of their sales via Amazon, just direct to consumer, you know, buy a whole pallet of this stuff, drink one a day. Um, And we're also seeing them have a significant amount of success in places like Sam's Club and Costco. Again, selling big packs of this stuff. You know, this is not single can sales. This is buy 24, buy 48, keep it in your fridge. Um, And I just think that positioning is is not really what we have seen with Monster Monster or, or Red Bull before, where it's, you know, drink this and play video games for 12 hours. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting with the Pepsi comparison as well, because Monster, uh, Coca Cola was such a big investor in Monster, and I think it took over its distribution. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, and that's that, really how it accelerated distribution, like 2010. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And that brings me kind of to the next point, which we've made the similarity before. I think we were talking about Cava and Chipotle and kind of yep. stocks looking like an already successful story. Yep. And we know that Monster Energy has been the best performance stock of the last 20 years on the market. So do you think that comparison where Celsius looks very much like a younger monster is adding fuel to the fire here? Yeah, definitely. I think people are chasing the stock that they think that they've seen before. Interestingly, in the same that we same thing that we saw with the comparison between Cava and Chipotle. Uh, the main difference here is actually profitability, um, which is unfortunate, but here we are. Um, I went back and checked, and in terms of revenue, Celsius is where Monster was in about 2010, which is they're clearing about $900 million in annual revenue, which is very impressive. Um, however, at the same time, though, Monster was able to bring in a pretty meager profit that was steadily going, growing quarter on quarter. So in 2010, you know, they would see between 3 and $0.06 cents per share um, per quarter kind of 
dropping to the bottom line in terms of earnings. Uh, Celsius is yet to kind of get to the place where their EPS is coming in consistently. Two quarters ago, they were profitless. And then this quarter, they were able to bring in 40 cents per share. So they're kind of all over the place. They haven't gotten to that steady place yet. Um, operating margins also look really different here. Monster was pulling in um, about a 25% margin back in 2010. Celsius is only at a 5.4% margin right now in terms of operating. So a bit lumpy. You know, you want to see a bit of strength there. Um, but they're getting close. They are improving. Um, gross margins look better. Gross profit margin for Celsius was 48% this quarter, up from 38% last year. Um, so that's good to see. Monster in 2010 had a, had a gross margin about 53%, and that has stayed pretty steady. So even now today, they're sitting at about 52 53%. So operating is looking pretty close. Um, however, it is worth saying that a lot of the exterior conditions that made Monster so successful are here. They are in play. Um, one of the most important things is that the global energy market is just booming right now. Uh, it's currently valued at about $45 billion, um, and that is projected to reach $108 billion by 2031, which means it's growing at a CAGR of 8.2%. Um, and that's internationally. The almost exact same growth figures are expected within the United States, maybe just ever so slightly slower because there's just greater market penetration there. But um, you know, this overall sector is growing rapidly. And so it is that thing of like any energy drink is going to have success there. But it is worth mentioning on top of that, Celsius is taking market share from much larger brands. So you kind of have a dual growth strategy there. Um, back in 2019, they represented 0.2% of the American market. By 2021, they were at 2% of the American energy drink market. Today, they're coming in at 4.9% of the energy drink market, which places them as the third largest behind uh, Monster and Red Bull. And they just overtook Bang Energy. So they're obviously doing something right here in terms of appealing to consumers and then also riding that larger wave of just energy drinks in general seem to be popular. I would also say that Celsius is in a really nice build out phase right now. Um, you know, Monsters had significant growth over the years, and that really has been that strategy of you establish yourself in the United States, you get really popular, and then you go and look abroad. Um, so currently, international sales for Celsius are only 4.5% of revenue. That's really tiny. They only have like a small footprint within Europe right now, um, whereas today, Monster is generating 40% of its revenue outside of the United States. Um, and that is definitely something that's on Celsius's kind of broader horizon. They said, even in their most recent call, um, that international sales grew 76% this quarter, but they really don't see their full international rollout hitting until kind of the end of 2024. And they will be working with Pepsi to get that going. Um, so it's definitely something that's on the books, but they're just not there yet. They're growing so fast in the United States. It's it's kind of like, well, that's going to be our secondary or tertiary sales wind at this point. So yeah, there definitely are some favorable comparisons between Monster, but really we just need to see that profitability improve, which I mean, it could do in the next four quarters like it's moving so quickly yeah growing revenue at three figures kind of helps when it comes to the bottom line oh yeah um so we touched on it a bit but it just reported earnings was it last week the week before yeah last week last week so how was q2 for celsius overall really just solid quarter i mean the stock went up i think it was like 20 percent in single day of trading and i mean it's, yeah, it's I think reasonable we saw that we saw that bump and we were like maybe we should actually talk about this yeah company. maybe we should go check back in uh yeah so for the quarter they cleared 325 million dollars um, which surpassed estimates by more than 15 percent, which is absolutely crazy to see like last year same quarter they were only clearing just about 150 million so an increase as i said of over 100 percent in revenue um which is crazy north american revenue surged 114 percent coming in at 300 
110 million, as you can say, only 15 million of their revenues being generated abroad, very tiny numbers, lots to do there. Um, and they said that their growth is being driven um, by continued gains in distribution points, increasing the average stock keeping units um, or unique products per location, basically building out that product offering so people can get excited, pick up a bunch of different flavors. Um, most of Celsius's sales are coming from a traditional brick and mortar retail convenience outlet. They have a lot of exposure to places like gas stations, but we are seeing growth in other kind of more reliable um, places, club channel revenue, which would be a Costco or a Sam's Club, uh, saw revenue increase by 120% coming in at $67 million, And Amazon online sales grew at 108% year over year coming in at almost $30 million. Um, the quarter also represented a pretty nice earnings surprise of 100% a quarter ago. It was expected the company would post earnings of $0.22 cents per share. It managed to bring in $0.40 cents per share. Um, that's the pretty solid what, 80%, more than 80% surprise. So everybody loves that. Um, and then in terms of just kind of short term, I know we don't really talk about other analysts in terms of price upgrades, but you know, obviously everybody got excited seeing this massive beat. Um, so as of right now, we're seeing an average kind of goal share price for the company of $188 per share, which they lifted price targets by over 20%, which is crazy. Um, however, currently the stock is sitting at $182 per share. So like there's a ceiling on this. You know, yeah, there's, there's they're no definitely, go, really. they're definitely chasing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'd say, yeah. I'd say there's a lot of those analysts kind of sitting down and looking at something that was a 40 bagger in three and a half years that yeah. also looked very similar to an already successful investment and being like, how do we miss this? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Um, lastly, then I just have a question for both of you. Would you be tempted to buy? This is a little bit expensive. That's my kind of only yeah, thing. It's kind of got. It's it's always tough to value a company that is growing sales at a hundred percent year over year. But yeah, it's got like a tech valuation for for it, what non sugary Red Bulls kind of. Yeah, essentially, like it's P to S, which like is not an appropriate metric for an energy drink company. It's coming in at fourteen point nine right now. Price, <laughs> so, right? <laughs> so sorry, not even a tech valuation, an incredibly expensive tech valuation. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of sales, and then it's P to E, which like you can't even like get a decent read on because it hasn't been profitable for four consecutive quarters. Is about three hundred and seventy eight. Yeah. Whereas like Monster's P to S right now is nine, and its P to E is forty two, and like that's even hot. Like Monster is even trading at a massive Mm. multiple, and it isn't growing a hundred percent a quarter in terms of revenue. So um, very expensive at the minute, particularly coming off of the back of that earnings to see a twenty percent pop. It has become again, prohibitively expensive, very similar to the conversation we had around NVIDIA, where we're going over a highly successful earnings, all of a sudden, everybody's paying attention to it, it's going to push the stock sky high. So uh, yeah, no, too expensive. Amish, what about you? Are you convinced after Emery's pitch there? Well, numbers, numbers, have you guys tasted it? Like, I'm not going to tell you if I'm going to buy shares in this business until I've tasted it. What's it taste like? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't had it, but uh, Mm, I can taste it in... At the end of September. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what Peter Lynch says. Yeah, you got to taste it first. I mean, I, I look for me when I think of energy drinks, I think of Red Bull, which tastes to me like dishwater. That's not even fair. Yeah. I haven't even tried dishwater, but I'd sooner drink. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Red, Bull, um, Red Bull for me tastes like vodka for some reason. Yeah. Oh right! Oh, for some <laughs> reason, that I, <laughs> yeah, um, I haven't tried Monster either. You know, but I'm supposed I'm supposed I'm slightly tongue in cheek. What I but what it tastes like is not really doesn't really matter uh, when you look at yeah, the data there. Yeah, I know, but it's nice to give it a shot. I um, I wouldn't buy it at today's prices, but certainly you can't argue with a, 
uh, distribution partnerships, such as the one they forged with Pepsi and the channels of distribution and what its market cap at the minute is sub 14 billion. It has still has some room, but it certainly wouldn't be in the f- top 50 businesses I'd wish to buy shares in today. Yeah, I think that's a fair summation. I don't think I'd touch it either now at the minute. But, you know, fair play to the people who own it. That's a very incredibly profitable investment in a very short space of time. So that's uh, Celsius Holdings there. Um, Okay, Emmett, we're moving on then. And we have a bit of a more philosophical question for you. And it kind of goes into individual investors versus institutional investors. I think it's a great one for our listeners to hear. So what advantages do us as individual investors have over the investment bankers and the guys in the hedge funds. And, you know, Mm. we see the Bloomberg terminals and 10 screens and 10 interns and all the rest, but that doesn't really tell all the story, does it? No, it doesn't. I love this question, Mike, because our advantages as individual investors are absolutely immense. And to answer the question, let me start by taking a trip down memory lane which was the 2022 Men's Soccer World Cup final, which ended last December, which, as our listeners will probably recall, was when Argentina beat France. And um, in that game, Argentina started with a really strong lead of 2-0 over France. And then uh, Mbappe, who Kylian Mbappe, who plays for France, quickly changed the course of the game. And he scored two goals uh in i think it was the second half and then with only a few minutes left argentina's megastar Lionel messi broke the tie and scored another goal um only for mbappe to do it again and only for the second time in in the history of the world cup finals had a hat trick and he scored his third goal with a very late penalty ending the world cup final on three all and this somehow happens statistically way too many times in World Cup finals. But then after that, and after all that drama, and it was a great match, there was a penalty shootout where Argentina won 4-2 in the penos, which is what they're known as in Ireland. Is penos an international term? Have you heard of penos, Anne-Marie? No, I'm not it's sure. A, I don't think maybe, it would travel to... No, I don't. It's a Dublinism maybe, or even Irishism, but yeah, penos. So anyway, the Argentina won 4-2 in the penalties. Now, here's my point. How on earth can so many of the world's most elite athletes who've practiced and scored tens of thousands of penalties since they could barely stand up miss so many in the world cup finals wait to hear this spain's coach luis enrique said before the team's last match uh, with morocco that he had told the players to take 1000 practice penalties um back with their clubs and either they weren't listening or it didn't work because the first three players to attempt one all failed to convert. How could that happen? It's inexplicable when you consider that a team containing some of the most technically talented sports players on the planet are missing this huge, big target. I mean, when you stand in front of a goal, it's been quite a while since I did it. It's, it's um, You're 11 meters from it. I know, look, when it comes to soccer, all the measurements come in every imaginable yeah, form. I was thinking you, 12 yards, 11 12 meters. 12 yards, 11 meters, number of feet. 30 feet. Yeah, whatever. it's 11 meters, 12 yards. The goal is 24 feet wide, which is about 7.3 meters wide. It's like a cavern. It's 2.4 meters wide. I, I could barely jump. I'm six foot, nearly six foot two. I could barely touch 2.4 meters up. Um, you know, it's like trying to throw an apple down Diggs Lane and missing. Like seriously, like <laughs> so get, get, missing a penalty 
it's just like absurd. But there's a ton of research on this. And, and as you can imagine, um, it's the real hot academic subject and we're on to World Cup finals and you occasionally see big research houses publish papers on why do so many world-class athletes miss penalties um, in finals. But the answer, the technical answer as to why a soccer player misses a goal is something like this. Shooting low to the right or shooting low to the left has the lowest success rates and shots into the top have a 100% conversion rate, okay? So former England striker Alan Shearer, um, who might be the most successful penalty taker ever, but definitely was a good one. Um, what he did as a player was he smashed the ball into the corner, top right-hand corner, top left-hand corner. And even if the goalie jumped before he struck the ball and went in the right direction, which is generally the only way a goalie would get to a penalty, he still had a chance of saving it because that zone is completely, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's the perfect place to place the ball. However, what happens, as I'm sure our listeners have guessed, is that players doubt themselves and they go for what they perceive to be safer in that moment. They know that their friends, their family, spectators, and probably hundreds of millions of people around the world are looking at them. Um, and this messes with their head. This gets inside their head. Of course it does. Their entire country are looking at a TV and holding their breath. And as they're walking towards that ball to take the penalty, um, I think in the scheme of sport, that's peak pressure. There's probably very few other moments in a sports person's life which is as stressful and as peak pressure as taking a penalty after a World Cup final in soccer. So let me tell you this. Hedge fund managers and professional money managers of any type feel their own equivalent burden of responsibility. Because it's funny, that, it's funny I forgot the question there. I was going to the penalty story. Oh, no, you went way off. Welcome to the sports like, where, podcast. Why are, you talk, why are you talking about hedge fund managers? <laughs> you know, so th this is it. So the point is that, like, they feel this equivalent burden. And not only because their clients are watching, but so too is the SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission. So too is their boss and his boss and her boss. And they need to explain their shot within a few weeks of taking it in the form of a quarterly report. Now, that's horrible. Now, I, I'm a, I used to be a musician, and the best music I've played was when nobody's listening. The worst music I play is when I have an audience. There are so many variations of this in your life. I'm certain everyone can relate to this. But a few years ago, I met somebody very famous. I'll tell you off, Mike. And they're absurdly wealthy. And I met them in the Shelburne Hotel um, in Dublin. And they had been sent a piece of paper uh, that prompted them to ask if they could meet me. And um, I said, mm, okay, but I don't, I don't really go to California much. And they said, that's fine, we'll pop over. Because that's what you do when you've got your own 747. Um, and during the chat... Uh, in the bar to the left when you walk in the front door, uh, he asked me if I'd like to manage a small amount of his family's wealth as a trial for something bigger. And I was flattered, I suppose. Uh, but his wife, Debbie, uh, leaned into me. I've probably just, <laughs> I've probably just unlocked the, the clue. But his wife leaned into me and said, do you really want to be answerable to him? And she pointed at her husband and she had a smile on her face. And there was a load of, truth in what seemed to be a comedic kind of uh, question. 
like there was a ton of truth and it was what is that expression half half joking fully in earnest um individual investors are free of burden they can buy a stock and in in the words of chris mayer uh who i interviewed for this show about a year and a half ago and who wrote the book 100 baggers and where to find them uh, chris mayer said that uh individual investors can put their shares on a coffee can and leave it for 25 years and answer to nobody and i think uh i'm almost certain that warren buffett said that if he was managing a small amount of money, he would return 50% annual growth per year reliably. Um, now, other dynamics are at play when you're managing hundreds of billions of dollars. But um, we as small investors have a massive massive advantage. We can choose which assets to invest in. We can decide when we're going to buy and sell, how much to allocate to each investment. We can decide whether, you know, whatever we want. We we don't incur fees for services. You know, with, you know, there's zero commission world out there, zero brokerage. Um, and we can align our investment strategies with our personal values and beliefs. And we don't have to explain it to anybody. Absolutely mm-hmm. nobody. If you're happy buying shares in Northrop Grumman who make like nuclear warheads and stuff knock yourself out i wouldn't touch it but if you like it and you're happy no problem no conflicts of interest yeah and you often hear of conflicts in in the space of professional money management well we couldn't buy this because we own that so there's all this house of cards if you like that that interfere with a professional fund manager's uh, clarity of thought and and i suppose purpose of action but above all of that stuff we as long-term investors can take that, just that, a truly long-term perspective. Individual investors um, have the flexibility to take, you know, if they want a 50-year approach and they don't have to answer to anybody and they don't have to pay taxes if they do nothing with that investment for 50 years and they avoid the pressure um, of having to show short-term gains, which is a real thing for money managers. And effectively, your performance is enhanced as an individual investor. When you decide this is the strategy I'm going with, the first few years are always ugly in a portfolio. But in the long term, by just sticking with this strategy diligently, I'll outperform them all. And that is the real advantage that you have sitting at home or sitting on the bus with nothing but your phone and your broker and some advice that you trust. Um, you you make your own decisions. And it's a really lovely thing because it's uh, the wealth creation mechanism that's available to everybody. Mm, that's great. So maybe less resources, but also a lot less restrictions, which is probably much more important in the long run, for sure. Mm. Okay. On that, um, we're going to just move on to a quick promo for Charging and Fearless. So that's our weekly email lose- newsletter. We're delivering to your inbox one of the most unique products on the market, and it's completely free. No one else is covering the markets we cover with Charging and Fearless, where we deliver to you a new weekly stock pitch that could be from Amsterdam, Tokyo, Paris, or somewhere in between. So it's a completely free stock pitch every week. You'll have it read in about 30 seconds flat, and we can almost guarantee most of these companies are going to be brand new to you. Where you so that is where you get an edge. Sign up now in the show notes for this episode. Okay, big deal or no deal? Amory, I'm going to start with you. So... Mm-hmm. We said we'd come back in and check in on Trade Desk's earnings uh, after we did the ad rundown a couple of episodes ago. So mm-hmm. the stock has fallen a decent bit in the week since it reported, despite posting some pretty stellar numbers. Is this a big deal or yeah. no big deal? Um, I would say it's a no, like it's a no big deal. Like I, we saw pretty solid performance metrics come out of them. Trade Desk 
earnings rose 40% to 28 cents per share. Revenue was increased 23% coming in at 464 million compared to 377 million in the same period last year. Analysts expected earnings about 26 cents and sales about 454. So it beat on both of those. Its earnings beat was pretty well by the skin of its teeth, but it works. Um, company expects a revenue of at least 485 million next quarter, which would be a 23% jump year over year. So pretty solid there in uh, terms of projections. Um, I would say that the correction of the stock price is kind of down to a bit of overhype. It's up something like over 80% in the last year or so. So it's, you know, that's, that's pretty good. Um, and probably just maybe a bit of caution around profitability. Um, operating margins have kind of been in a bit of a steady decline since 2018. Back then, they were coming in at about 22.5%. They dropped about 20% in 2020. Uh, this quarter, they came in at 9%. But that is an improvement of where they were full year of 2022, where they were 7.2%. So they're coming to build back. Um, Operating expenses are increasing. That's kind of why these margins are being compressed. Uh, In this quarter, they were up 12.6% year over year to $422 million. Um, They basically said that this is down to platform operation expenses, which have increased 28% year over year in this quarter. Um, So it just seems like they just work on managing those, keeping them down so that money can continue to fall to the bottom line here. it is worth noting that the trade desk finished 2022 uh, with a 32% drop, jump in revenue, but only a 14% jump in earnings. So, you know, those are becoming a bit more detached than we would like to see. Um, even now, though, like trade desk is trading at a pretty expensive uh, er, price to earnings 22 times. Oh, sorry, 22 times sales right now, um, which is a good bit higher where it was at the end of 2022, where it was only at 15 price to sales. So, yeah, a bit of correction and. Uh, Probably just a, a watchful eye needs to be kept on its uh, on its margins for the next couple of quarters. Okay, not so bad. So like a really expensive uh, energy drinks company. So yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, Emmett, we're going to the other end of the scale here. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway released uh, what is it? Thirteen F. It's where it really saw its buys over the quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is reported that it bought almost one billion dollars worth of shares in America's largest home builders. So that's. Uh, DR Horton, Lenar, and NRV. I think most of the buys were concentrated in DR Horton. Is this a big deal or no big deal? I'm going to say it's a pretty big deal. The fact that Berkshire is buying shares and home builders is a sign that Warren Buffett believes that the housing market is on the rebound. Um, and I guess this is a positive sign on the whole. And as we know, a strong housing market leads to more jobs and more consumer spending. But specifically, Berkshire purchased uh, nearly 6 million shares, as you said, in Dior Horton, um, 153,000 shares in Lenar, and something like 11,000 shares in MVR. And the total investment value was, I think, about, uh, as you said, it was nearly a billion. It was about $800 million. Um, and these are the biggest home builders in the United States, and they collectively account for about 20% of the single-family housing market in the U.S., and as discussed here in the past, guys, the housing market has been struggling. It really has in America in recent years due to rising interest rates, shortage of inventory, you know, the same stories kind of playing out in other markets mm. in Ireland as well. But however, the, this to me is a sign that the market is starting to rebound. Um, home prices are rising. Builders are starting to increase production. I presume margins are increasing, but I, I think this is quite a big deal and I suppose an early economic indicator for America Incorporated. What do you think, Amory? Um, I know the U.S. desperately needs more homes, but they need to be probably 
more affordable is I would say the number one issue that's, that's uh, going on right now. But I know that building was paused after 2008 was like building was paused essentially for three or four years. So there's already a hangover from that. And then 2020, 2021 building was effectively paused, not just because people, you know, weren't necessarily allowed to be in proximity of each other, but also wasn't there a huge run on lumber mm. um, oh, yeah. during that period. So I would say like in terms of pace, like the U S housing market hasn't been, um, up to where it needs to be probably for the last 10 ish years. So, um, yeah, mm. it makes sense to me. Yeah. There's a really interesting, um, supply glut happening now as well with the mortgage rates so essentially mm. so many people have locked in an incredibly low mortgage rate over the last uh since 2020 uh, i think some like 90 percent of homeowners have a mortgage rate under seven percent and i think the average mortgage rate now is around eight mm-hmm. so if you sell your house you have to get go get a new mortgage so that is also that also means that inventory is getting shortened more so now because people don't want to sell their house and go and get a worse loan essentially so Mm. i think that could be a factor behind it too in that there needs to be pressure on building more homes to increase that supply right now Mm -hmm. yeah but again i think warren buffett is maybe thomas toberville is the only person who will know more about the macro and home building right now than Warren Buffett. He seems to be really clued into everything. So yeah, it's a very, very interesting move. Um, okay. We're going to finish off with an elevator pitch. Amory, a few weeks ago, I said I'd buy shares in Ikea. If I could, you've gone and done some research and found the Japanese Ikea for me. So yeah. I'm very interested to hear this elevator pitch. Yeah, we covered it in charging and fearless this week. Uh, it's very cool little pick. I like it. It's a uh, big business. Like probably, you know, you're not going to get, I don't know. 20x but it's uh performing really well it's called notori holdings its ticker symbol on the tokyo exchange is 9843 um, but it also has an over-the-counter adr trading in new york which is nclty um, current market cap is about 12 billion us dollars but its sales growth is just so consistent um this year it managed 16 percent year-over-year sales growth bringing in 6.5 billion but even like Year before, 13% sales growth. Year before that, coming in about 11.5% sales growth. Just very consistent. Um, and then big thing that we love to see, insider ownership, 24.2%. Um, Notori is a Japanese furniture and home accessory company. It's very similar to Ikea. It was founded in 1967 by Akio Um, And he actually remains the business's chairman, CEO, and largest shareholder. So he's there Since for Since 1967. Yeah, he's like, I think he's in his 80s, but he's cruising. That's he's wild. There. He's, he's on top of it. So um, one of the most interesting parts about this is, you know, we always think about Ikea as having that really Scandinavian design. Um, Notori follows like the Japanese tradition of that innovative practicality, you know, like just make things that kind of work. Um, and that actually means that they scale down a lot of their offerings because they're making products specifically for the Asian market. And as like, if you guys have ever seen like those documentaries or news features that are done on apartments in places like Hong Kong or Malaysia or Singapore, their apartments are tiny, really, really, really small. They call those apartments in Hong Kong coffin apartments because they're so small. Um, and so it means that Notori is like, okay, we got to scale all of this stuff down. And it was really interesting to read. Um, they recently launched in Malaysia last year and they spent weeks interviewing families in cities across the country there. And they went around and measured apartments just to make sure that all the products that they produced would be well suited to the way that they build homes there. Um, 
but don't think like it doesn't mean the stuff doesn't look good how to look through the catalog stuff is nice and they do like a highly highly competitive um product screening process they bring in groups of people across all ages and demographics have them interact with the product have them tell them what it looks like ask for improvements um and apparently that ceo he is still flying and visiting all of their factories routinely all the time to go in and test product to make sure everything looks good um blah 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 and just a bit of a fun fact i have for you so on that kind of compactness that is required dining tables produced by notori in comparison to ikea are between five to six centimeters lower than standard european ones and they are also narrower their sofas are shallower and more upright so that they take up less space just you know efficiency anywhere they can um similarly its stores take up way less space and they're scattered throughout cities um with this approach notori has kind of been able to just meet consumers more at home and they have apparently really good delivery and setup service. So you could go in, design a whole kitchen, walk out and show up next week. Um, and so it means that they have way more locations. As of right now, they're just below 900. They, by 2032, they want to have 3000 locations all across the world, but particularly focused in Asia. They're building out Southeast Asia at the minute, which is a rapidly growing economy. So a lot of interest there. Uh, in comparison, IKEA only has like 460 locations, but they're huge. You know, they've got that massive warehouse. They're storing a lot of uh, stuff. Uh, Notori doesn't exactly have that model here. Um, but also, just like IKEA, Notori designs, manufactures, distributes, and sells more than 90% of its products. It's in full control. Vertical integration there, which means it has nice, strong, stable margins. Operating margin routinely sits above 15%. Um, so it's good to see. I kind of went and had a look at some Reddit threads, some online reviews, because again, just like Celsius, like Notori is not in Europe, so we can't go and have a look and sit in the chairs and say, yes, this is a more upright sofa. Um, but from what I have seen, people seem pretty happy with it, particularly in Japan, which is where the vast majority of these stores sit, about 50% are there. Um, people basically say it is like Ikea. Some people even said it's a higher quality Ikea. The stuff is nice. Um, it's inexpensive, easy to use. Um, so maybe one day if they make their way to Ireland, we can go try that out. It's probably about 10 years, but anyway. Um, Whereas of right now, the key to their success is going to be international expansions. As I said, they're trying to push in uh, to Thailand and the Philippines within this year. They just opened in Singapore uh, with something like 15 stores. Those have been going very, very well. Um, so that's kind of where to keep an eye on. Interestingly, though, they did open two experimental stores in North America. One was in Canada. One was in the U.S., I think in Texas. I think they were just trying to feel it out, see how it was going to go. And they closed both of those uh, at the end of 2022 because it just kind of didn't catch on. However, I wouldn't be surprised to see them try it again because there is a thing to Japanese brands. People do like them. Uniqlo, which is a clothing brand, is very, very popular at the minute and has a really similar branding. It's very much just practical essentials. These are very good plain t-shirts. These are very good plain pants. Here's a nice windbreaker. You know, I think if they were able to just get their brand a bit more in front of people before they launch, they could have success outside the U.S., as of right now, trading at a PDE of 22, which is slightly above what we would see from an American furniture company, which tend to come in at about 18. That's the industry average. However, Notori is growing way faster than most publicly listed furniture companies in the U.S. You know, if we look at something like restoration hardware, that's seeing very incremental single digit revenue growth. I think the last couple of quarters have actually seen a year over year drop. But Notori to be performing, you know, bringing in an average of 15 percent revenue growth quarter after quarter. You love to see it. And actually, just as like a final thought on the longevity of this business they have had 36 consecutive year halves because they don't do quarters in japan um, of revenue and uh profit growth so that is just a, a performer year over year yeah it's mad i can't get over the ceo has been ceo for 50 years yeah cruising yeah yeah i'd say Emmett, you feel like you've been over my wall street for 50 years at this stage yeah you know? yeah definitely <laughs> i'm counting i'm counting 
<laughs> look at me. Look at me. Okay. I'm gray-haired. I, when I started this gig, I had, I had, oh, I had my care in the world. Jet black hair, 22 years old. <laughs> <laughs> we confirm that that is an absolute lie, by the way. Um, <laughs> okay. Before we finish up, I just want to give a sh- quick shout out to our friends and sponsors at Vodafone Business. So if you're an Irish business looking to get more digital help and advice, Vodafone Business is the way to go. They offer a whole array of digital apps, productivity tools, security solutions, IT support, and even website builders. They've actually just launched their own VHub digital advisory service as well. So Irish businesses of all sizes can get free one-to-one digital support and advice tailored to their business by simply booking a call with one of their VHub digital experts. You can find that on the Vodafone business website. So just search Vodafone VHub for more information. And that's it for today's show. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to tackle or elevator pitches you'd like us to answer, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we will talk to you next week.